My name is Catherine Gedek-Soltis. I have the privilege of directing the Center for Peace and Justice Education here at Villanova University. And I'm very glad to welcome you all this afternoon to a very special event. Uh, since 1990, the Center has annually recognized outstanding contributions to the meaning and conditions for peace and justice in our communities. Our past recipients of this award include John Sabrino, Habitat for Humanity, Sister Helen Pajan, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, Philadelphia Mural Arts Program, and last year, Lema Bowie. Today, we have the great honor of adding to that list Mr. Wendell Berry as the recipient of the 2012 Adela Dwyer St. Thomas of Villanova Peace Award. In 1957, 
He completed his master's degree and married his lifelong companion, Tanya. Our honoree has also taught at Stanford University, Georgetown College, New York University, University of Cincinnati, Bucknell University, and finally his alma mater, the University of Kentucky. In 1965, our honoree moved to a 125-acre hillside farm he purchased in Port Royal, Kentucky, near his family and the banks of the Kentucky River. He has farmed, resided, and written there to this present day. The author of more than 40 works of poetry, fiction, nonfiction, our honoree has been the recipient of numerous prestigious awards and honors including most recently the National Humanities Medal and the Jefferson Lecture for 2012, our nation's highest honor for distinguished intellectual achievement. Our honoree has produced acclaimed works of poetry and literature. And through these works, he's, he has served as, to extend the conversation about his life and values. He believes that the good life includes values such as faith, fidelity, frugality, frugality humility, and reverence. He believes in the virtues and the practical logic of sustainable agriculture, appropriate technologies, healthy rural communities, connection to place, local economics, the pleasures of good food, the dignity of work guided by attention and care, and the appreciation for the miracle of life, as well as the inter... Through his words and actions, our honoree has called attention to the dangers of industrial farming, the industrialization of life as we know it, ignorance, hubris, greed, violence against others and against the natural world, issues of global economics, the dangers of soil erosion, and ultimately environmental destruction. For these reasons, and for outstanding contributions to the understanding of the meaning of justice and peace, the Villanova University Center for Peace and Justice Education is proud to present the 2012 Adela Dwyer St. Thomas of Villanova Peace Award to Professor Wendell Barrett.
But I do take this subject of peace seriously. And I know that it becomes every day more a practical necessity and less a mere virtue, something we've got to have, we've got to learn to do. So today, I'm not going to speak directly, but, uh, actually I'm going to read uh, two things that are not directly concerned with the issue of peace, but that are involved. The first peace that we've got to make, I think, is peace with this world, this earth, this gift. And so I'm going to read uh, a very brief uh, paper that I wrote uh, in order to give what prominence I can to what we're calling the 50-year farm bill. And this will be explained in the course of the, of the little paper. And then I'm going to read a brief story about war. And uh, maybe we'll come up with something to the point. This is the little piece. The uplands of my home country in north central Kentucky are sloping and easily eroded, dependent for safekeeping upon year-round cover of perennial plants. Its best agricultural use is for the production of grazing animals, most of the land in pastures and hay fields, and perhaps 5 to 10 percent plowed and row crops in any year. This was the practice of the best farmers of that country 50 or 60 years ago. The land husbandry there, as elsewhere, has been in decline since the end of World War II, as agriculture has become more and more industrial and more and more of the farming people have taken urban jobs or moved away. But recently, and almost suddenly, as ethanol production has driven up the price of grain, our fragile uplands have been invaded by corn and soybeans. Whole farms with sloping fields that have been in grass as long as I can remember have been herbicided and planted to annual crops that because of the drastic reduction of the number of farmers will not be protected in winter by fall-sown cover crops. This is agriculture determined entirely by the market and limited only by the capacities of machines and chemicals. Its entirely predictable ruination is the result of degenerate science and the collapse of local farming cultures. Industrial agriculture characteristically proceeds by single solutions to single problems. If you want the most money from your land this year, grow the crops for which the market is highest. Though the ground is sloping, kill the standing vegetation and use a no-till planter 
weed controls, plant an herbicide-resistant crop variety, and use more herbicide. But even officially approved industrial technologies do not alter reality. The supposed soil saving of no-till farming applies to annual crops during the growing season, but the weather continues through the fall and winter and early spring. Rain continues, snow falls, the ground freezes and thaws. A dead sod or dead weeds or the dead residue of annual crops is not an adequate ground cover. If this usage continues year after year on sloping land, and especially following soybeans, the soil will erode. It will do so increasingly, and this will be erosion of ground already poisoned with herbicides and other chemicals. Moreover, even with the use of no-till and minimal till technologies, an estimated half of the applied nitrogen fertilizer runs off into the Mississippi River and finally the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Thus, an enormous economic loss to farmers becomes an enormous ecological loss as well. The industrial providers of single solutions assume that the agricultural structure of a country, a region, or a farm can be built piecemeal, can be built piecemeal of disparate single parts, not necessarily or even probably fitting either the other parts or the farm or the local ecosystem and yet ultimately resolving into a coherent, sensible, even a sustainable pattern by the disposition of the market. This, obviously, is nonsense. A good or a sustainable farm cannot be made in this way. Its parts, even its industrial parts, can be made coherent and lasting only in obedience to the natural laws that order and sustain the local forest or prairie ecosystem. This is not just an option. It is a necessity. By ignoring it, we have condemned our land to continuous waste and pollution and our cultures of husbandry to extinction. To hope to correct the consequent disorder, which is both human and natural, we have to begin by recognizing the fundamental incompatibility between industrial systems and natural systems, machines and creatures. This recognition is not new. The problem was closely studied and made clear by such reputable people as J. Russell Smith, Albert Howard, and Aldo Leopold, whose publications were available and were ignored in the mid-20th century when the all-out industrialization of farming got underway. I now have described the need for a farm bill 
that makes sense of and for agriculture. Not the fiscal and political sense of agriculture, as in the customary farm bills, but the ecological sense, without which agricultural sense cannot be made, and without which agriculture cannot be made sustainable. A 50-year farm bill, which has been in circulation now for more than three years, is a proposal by the Land Institute in Salida, Kansas, with the concurrence of numerous allied groups and individuals. This bill addresses the most urgent problems of our dominant way of agriculture, soil erosion, toxic pollution of soil and water, loss of biodiversity, the destruction of farming communities and cultures. It addresses these problems by invoking nature's primary law, in default of which her other laws are of no avail. Keep the ground covered, and keep it covered by preference with perennial plants. At present, 80% of our farmable acreage is planted in annual crops, only 20% having the beneficent coverage of perennials. This, by the standard of any healthy ecosystem, is absurdly disproportionate. Annual plants are nature's emergency medical service, seeded in wounds and scars to hold the land until the perennial cover is reestablished. By this rule, our present agriculture, giving 80% of our farmland to annuals, is in a state of emergency. But you can't run a landscape any more than you can run your life indefinitely in a state of emergency. To live your life to live in your place, you have got to bring about a settlement that does not involve you continuously in worry, loss, and grief. And so, a 50-year farm bill proposes a 50-year schedule by which the present ratio of 80% annual to 20% perennial would be exactly reversed. The ratio then would be 20% annual to 80% perennial. And perhaps I need to say plainly here that the perennial crops would be forages and grains. Nobody at present is talking about the possibility of breeding and raising perennial table vegetables. By reversing the ratio of perennials to annuals, reducing annual plowing to four-fifths and, and making it possible to plow in any year only the, least value, only the least vulnerable land, soil erosion would be radically reduced. Chemical pollution also would be substantially reduced because perennials grown in mixtures such as grasses with legumes as they already are in most pastures and many hay fields, are more self-sustaining and less chemical dependent than annual 
monocultures. This proposed great change would involve many smaller changes, all of which cannot be foreseen, let alone discussed in a short speech. I would like to enlarge upon just one of its implications. The perennial plant cover we're talking about would be of several kinds, permanent pastures, pastures in rotation with row crops, perennial crops grown for hay or silage, and starting perhaps within 10 years, perennial grain crops grown in polycultures, which at times can and probably should be used for grazing. And so one of the most important results of the perennialization of agriculture would be the movement of farm animals out of the wretched confinement factories where they don't and can never belong and back onto the pastures and into the open air where they do belong. Besides an immense kindness, this movement would be a return to ecological health. It would transfer vast tonnages of so-called animal waste from the water It would transfer vast tonnages of so-called animal waste from the watercourses, where it is a pollutant, to our actual food-producing acreage, where it is an indispensable fertilizer. This, I hope, will also start us thinking again about the disposal of so-called human waste. One of our great needs now is for human eaters to understand their eating as just one event within the fertility cycle, the wheel of life, by which, in the fullest state of health, food is carried from the soil to the stomach, and then, as so-called waste, is carried back again to fertilize the soil. If we keep faith with this cycle, we humans can continue to eat indefinitely. Otherwise, we cannot. If the waste of farm animals, as of farm-dependent humans, actually is wasted, then we are eating finite quantities that we will finally eat up entirely, at which point we will cease to eat. The fertility cycle is a cycle entirely of living creatures, passing again and again through birth, growth, maturity, death, and decay. Industrial technologies may shortcut the cycle for a while, but such shortcuts also interrupt it, bringing it and us into danger. Now that brief is, is probably a heavy dose. <laughs> so after that, maybe you would relax a little in hearing a story.
think I could make a transition here, but I'm not going to attempt it. <laughs> this is a story called The Girl in the Window, and it's set in 1864 in a Kentucky small town. And uh, this, this story is the product of really not an intention to write a story, but simply of my long pondering over the history of the Civil War in Kentucky. If you read uh, the usual Civil War histories of Kentucky, what you read about is politics and battles. Um, but the significant thing that happened in Kentucky, of course, is that it was really a civil war. It wasn't a war between the states. It was a war that divided families and communities, bitterly. <coughs> that Kentucky was occupied as Bragg's army moved south after the Battle of Perryville. Kentucky was occupied by the Federal Army, which behaved terribly, doing reprisal killings and uh, jailing people, uh, as, the, as in the story, who have shown signs of being unfavorable to the Union and jailing them without due process. The girl in the window, they might as well all have been the same bunch, though they weren't. Sometimes there would be enough gray uniforms or uniform pieces among them to permit them to be identified, perhaps, as rebels. Sometimes they would be more formally recognizable as Yankees because they would all be dressed in uniforms that would be blue. Sometimes because of their unlikeness to one another and to any living thing ever before seen in Port William, you couldn't tell who they were. Whoever they were, the town shut itself against them like a terrapin, closing its shell. From the yards and porches and storefronts along the single street, people withdrew behind doors. People who had ridden into town in a wagon or on horseback got themselves and their animals out of sight if they could. Otherwise, they were apt to have to get away on foot, their mules or horses requisitioned, and if the younger men could get away at all before being arrested or recruited. The Yankees would be looking for persons disloyal to the Union, a category not clearly defined, or for revenge against perpetrators of disloyal acts, which also were not well defined or perhaps even definable. The rebels would be on the lookout for recruits. The others, the self-described irregulars or guerrillas, would be actuated as like as not by some local grudge going back a long time before the war. All of them, always, were looking for any livestock that could be ridden, worked, or eaten, anything that could be eaten, anything usable as a weapon, anything portable that was worth carrying away, any opportunity for amusing themselves by any of the cruelties available to those 
who had abjured seemingly forever the laws of kinship and friendship and neighborhood. And Fort William was isolated, beyond the reach of official help, too small and divided even to consider defending itself, both too southern and too near the Ohio River. Doing freely, beyond constraint or compunction, the things that it seemed men would do if they got the chance, they all were trouble. Trouble when they were present, trouble when they were gone, no end of trouble. She feared them all, and therefore she hated them all. She was Rebecca Dahl, daughter of Maxie and James John Dahl, sister of Galen Dahl, who had been killed by a neighbor as he was leaving to join the Confederate Army at the start of the war. Her two older sisters were at home on the river bottom farm down by Dahl's Landing, where their father had a store, and where the family and their handful of slaves provided more help, in fact, than was needed. She could be spared, and so she had come up to Port William to help her Aunt Dicey, her mother's sister, with her young children, to help with the work of the household, for her greater safety as her parents saw it, and as she herself saw it, for relief from isolation in the great space of the river valley and from her parents grieving. And Dicey needed her until Rebecca came walking barefoot up from the river, carrying her shoes and extra clothing bundled in a shawl. Dicey had been alone with her three children, the oldest almost still a baby, and what she called her little dab of livestock, a milk cow, two shoats, and by now a bare dozen hens. Like some of the other houses in Port William, the Needles fronted of small farms, theirs going narrowly all the way back to the woods on the river bluff. Dicey's husband, Thomas Needley, the town's only blacksmith, was in the federal military prison in Louisville for an act of disloyalty. One evening past dark, working mainly by field, he had reset a shoe on a stranger's horse. He had charged nothing. The stranger, who was in a hurry, had not asked what he owed. And Thomas, in the circumstances and from experience, was afraid to name the price. But the stranger had been the wrong one to help with such a favor. He was a wanted man. He was caught. And on his testimony, Thomas Needley was charged with aiding him in his attempt to escape. A small band of federal soldiers came in the night, arrested Thomas, and carried him away. Dicey did not know why they had taken him, or where, or if he was alive, until she received a long-delayed letter somehow smuggled out of the prison. It was a letter much beyond Thomas's powers of writing written for him in a determinedly beautiful flowing script by fellow prisoners, by fellow prisoner. Mrs. Needley, dear madam, Thomas Needley, your husband, was put in here the Fed military jail at Louisville on yesterday, charged with aiding a rebel. 
He says he is well and all right and fully able to body and mind and send clothes, etc., if possible, a friend. Dicey did send a packet of his clothes and a few other things that not knowing she thought might be of use. This he never received, nor did she hear from him again. Until the war ended nearly a year later, for all she knew, he had fallen off the edge of the world. And it had been, she would think, a kind of world's edge that he had been to, for he had come back from the helplessness and powerlessness of the dead. When he stood again in his anvil, in his strength, in the fierce heat and exactitude of his old work, he had, it seemed to her, the aspect of one who had returned from the grave. In Thomas's absence, lacking his offering to the community of his needed work and its return of money, the household had become oversimplified and poor. Dicey, who had married late, was 30. Rebecca, just 16. They watched over the children. They kept house fairly and neatly. They gardened and foraged and traded for food and accepted gratefully the food sent up to them from the doll household down in the river valley, always in small amounts as a precaution against theft, and because even at the doll's place, food was hardly abundant. The dam of livestock pertained to the two women and their household only conditionally. The two shoats, their ears notched, had been turned loose in the woods, and they were Dicey's own still, if they were not caught or shot by some band of soldiers or bushwhackers, and if ever she could get them penned and slaughtered when the time came. The chickens, too, easily stolen from the hen house, had been allowed to go half wild, roosting in trees and hiding their nests in the weeds or the barn at the mercy of predators. The cow, they had saved from threats or from theft or slaughter so far by confining her in the farthest pasture. Thomas had built in a corner next to the woods a pen of split rails and a small shed where some hay could be stored. To this pen, Rebecca carried the milk bucket every morning and every evening, the children following along. And then she carried home again enough milk to drink fresh and to keep them in cream and butter and clabber. The cow, said Dicey, who liked to say things well, is our luck and our luxury. This was late in the summer of 1864, and their luxuries were in fact lucky and rare. But they were living in what Rebecca was learning fast to recognize as the human condition in which things are most clearly known by their opposites. She and the others were most touchingly and dearly living because Galen Dahl and so many others were dead, because so many boys, even as young as Rebecca, had been killed in battle, cut down like weeds. They were most movingly, most consciously and thoughtfully free because Thomas and so many others were in prison. 
They ate with relish their frugal meals because of the lively possibility that even they, before the coming winter, would be over, could be hungry. They were gathering in and preserving and putting away, even hiding, every surplus scrap of food. There would be stuff yet from the garden. In the fall, they would gather walnuts and hickory nuts from the woods. They might, with help, catch and slaughter the two hogs, but the prospect was neither bounteous nor certain. There were times when their thoughts were carried round and round by hope and fear, courage and resignation. Dicey said, Lord, I reckon the poor human race has come to a many such a fall as this one. We'll make it, maybe, if those creatures don't steal the food right out of our mouths. At the start of the war, she had been openly in sympathy with the Confederacy, like the rest of her family. By now, all the violent ones in their bunches, she called, without distinction, creatures. It was a vital, reverberant word when she said it. For as she acknowledged with frank reluctance the belonging of all creatures to God, she pointedly refused to these the classification of human. Even at the height of her resentment and indignation, she did not curse them, but she made no distinction between them and the other creatures, supposedly, as she would say, lower, who conducted themselves in bunches. The state was occupied officially by the Union Army. She did not indulge herself by supposing that official occupation by the Confederate Army would have been better, or for that matter, different. Power, and for how long, was the power of the bunch. The bunches had been with them from the beginning. In the summer of 1861, a company of recruits of each side had drilled in Port William on the same day and by their taunting back and forth had come close to a shooting scrape right there in the road. It was almost history, Dicey said. It would have been known as the Battle of Port William. If it had happened, it would have been as intimate an engagement almost as a family quarrel. No strangers would have been involved. Everybody in each company knew everybody in the other one. It would have been Port William's own. The town and the countryside were divided most cruelly, for the division was not among strangers, but among neighbors and kinsfolk. That was why, in the Port William neighborhood, the violence, the violence peripheral to the official war was never entirely at rest. In addition to the almost routine recruiting or kidnapping, arresting and stealing, there were barn burnings and other acts of vandalism. Threats were shouted from the darkness or delivered openly to housewives standing in their doorways. And there were rumors, groundless as often as not, but grounded firmly nonetheless on experience. <clears throat> the effort of the day was all but over. 
Though the sun was well up in the sky, Rebecca and the children had walked back to attend to the cow and walked home again with the milk, giving Dicey time to set the house to rights and have a little quiet. Rebecca then had come upstairs to her bedroom, for she loved the stillness of the ordered house at the day's end, and she too needed her quiet. The house, especially the upstairs rooms, was warm beyond comfort, but she sat still by the open front window for the touch of a breeze that was there, and looked out as she liked to do. In a while they would have a supper of milk and cold biscuits and other leftovers from dinner, and then she and Icy would sit on the front porch in the gathering dusk while the children played in the yard. By full dark, all of them would be in bed to save light, Dicey would say, meaning candles and lamp oil. The shadows of the house and the trees beside it had reached all the way across the road to the Feltner house, shut and quiet on the other side. And then the murmur of voices from down along the few storefronts of the town became briefly louder and then ceased altogether. She heard the hoofbeats of one horse galloping away along one of the paths that led out from the town into the fields. A shiver passed over her, as shivers do when somebody has stepped on the place that will be your grave. She leaned in her chair to look and saw coming down the hill from the schoolhouse toward the stores and the bank and the church and the town's middle, a little band of riders. They rode at a walk, looking around. When they came among the business places, now evidently shut and deserted, they stopped, bunching together, and then began riding erratically back and forth, leaning now and again from their saddles to test a latch or to pound a fist on a locked door. One of them fired a pistol into the air. They were well armed with holstered pistols and long guns scabbarded or lying across the saddle bows. One of them had a sheathed saber dangling at his side. That the one had so reasonlessly fired his pistol suggested to Rebecca that they were there without purpose, looking merely for whatever they might find. But watching them was, in fact, like watching creatures of another species, a flock of blackbirds or a school of shad. Everything they had done seemed to her familiar and unsurprising, but she could not in the least anticipate what they would do next. It was this sense of their oddity, their utter strangeness, that made her afraid of them. Her fear was a palpable tremor inside her. But even though she was alone, she did not allow any visible sign that she was afraid. She stayed as she was, quietly watching. The breeze bore up to her window the warm smells of horse sweat and dust, and now and again the voices of the riders. She had no idea who they were. They clearly were not Yankees of the force of occupation, 
but there were several other possibilities. They could have been strayed rebels, or members of the so-called Home Guard, or irregulars, or bushwhackers, who could have been anybody with any cause or intention. In Port William, the war had a lot of sides. It was hard to tell how many or which was which. Worse, it was sometimes hard to tell who in Port William was on which side. This had made the town cautious, and as a result, far less talkative than it had been before the war, and would come to be again years after it ended. During the war, Port William found it hard to keep to its old way of talking to itself about itself. As nearly everybody seemed to know, there were great men at the top of the contending governments and armies who foresaw and even desired that eventually the war would have an official end. But at the bottom were men who did not care if it never ended. She would remember all her life the threatful or wanton or heartless things she saw during the years of the war, and in fact during many years following. Unofficial acts of violence as surely permitted by the war as if they had been determined by policy. The war also had given her two visions of such acts, which she had not seen, but which she saw in her mind in such detail that she might as well have seen them with her eyes. She could see, she would see all her life, her brother Galen on the bay gilding known as Rex, starting to a place near Smallwood where a company of Confederate volunteers was known to be gathering. He was senior to Rebecca by 11 years, and therefore to her a mature man. But in her vision of him, as she grew older, he became younger, until the day when, in her never-finished sorrow, the realization would come. He was just a boy. He sat well on his horse. He rode alone. And as she saw, as in her vision she increasingly understood, his face had a certain solemnity, as if the hesitance and effort of his decision now behind him, he felt himself a man fated to war, though not surely a man fated to be killed in that moment before he could breathe again. The family knew who did it, though there was no witness, no avowal, no evidence that was indisputable. And so the story she knew was not the story only of her brother. But in her vision, he was alone. And when she heard the shot, it surprised her. Every time the vision returned to her in the night or in the daytime, when she sat alone, the shot surprised her. For she saw each time that Galen anticipated nothing, was aware perhaps of nothing but himself and his horse passing on their way. It seemed to her that Galen did not hear the shot. He fell at once and cleanly from the saddle, delivered out of time without even a suspicion of the cause. The ones who happened upon his body found the horse nearby, grazing along the roadside. 
The second vision was from the fall of 1863, more than two years after the first. Several slaves, five or six of them, both men and women, were cutting and shocking corn by moonlight out on the Bird's Branch Road, not far from the church. In her vision, she saw them plainly, working steadily along to the rhythm that their corn knives hacked into the rustling of the dry corn. They were singing. They were singing, freedom, oh, freedom. That was all the song, but they sang it back and forth among themselves. Sometimes they would fall silent, and then the song continued unsung to the beat of the knives. And then a solitary voice would lift into the moonlight, Oh, freedom. And then they would all sing, Freedom, oh, freedom. A cry that was old and creaturely and human. Later she would imagine that there had rarely been a time, and in Fort William after slavery, perhaps never again a time, when the word freedom had been so understandingly sounded. As the singers sang, they worked. As they worked, the rows of standing corn slowly became fewer, and the rows of shocks increased. Over the striking of the knives, and the steady rustling of the corn, and the singing, the moonlight fell as if a greater silence were thus made visible. And Rebecca saw, too, following the narrow road up the rise from the church, another of the little bands of hostile men that in those years crisscrossed the neighborhood, leaving at each time, it seemed to her, worse than it had been before, just as they crisscrossed also her own mind, leaving at each time sadder and yet stronger and less to be fooled. There was no question who these were, for the people of Port William had come by various ways to know for certain. These were Confederate cavalry, six men and an officer. Their presence was perhaps accountable by some minor event or accident of the war, and yet to her own mind it was factual without being explainable. They simply were there, alien and unbelonging as they had been wherever they had come from, as they would be wherever they would go, like all the others who had been displaced by the unaiming destiny of the bunch. As they came up along the corn rows and into the sound of the Negroes singing and understood it, that word rising as if by nature out of bondage, the officer abruptly spurred his horse put him to the rock fence beside the road, and neatly cleared it. He rode in among the crew of workers. They were scattering, running like quail into the standing corn. Drawing his pistol, he shot the eldest of them, a slave man named Tucker, point blank in the side of the head. It was no wonder that her time to marry came late for a young woman of Fort William. It came when she was 24, seven years after the formal, the historical ending of the war. The nighttime reprisals of vengeful, of vengeful men, 
the unofficial violence set loose and still nominally justified by official violence were still terrorizing the country. Her own repugnance and disdain persisted in those years of official peace. She would not be wedded. She could hardly bear to be looked at by the young men of her own place, every one of whom seemed to her to bear the taint of what she ever afterward called that awfulness. She married instead an Irish immigrant who, to escape the bunch violence that ruled his own land, had come to America, and hearing that a shoe cobbler was needed, finally to Fort Whitting. Though she was old enough in that summer of 1864 for a Port William girl to be married, the awfulness already had driven any thought of courtship or marriage from her mind. She had instead taken a defensive stand on the side merely of the helpless and the threatened. On their behalf, she distrusted all the creatures, the bunches, and the weapons. That was why she sat still in her fear and watched as the alien riders, in the absence or invisibility of the entire membership of the town, occupied and ruled over the empty road. And then, seeing nothing easily to be taken or enjoyed, they began to give the place up. They gathered again in the road and formed raggedly a line, resuming the direction that would carry them on through the town and finally into the river valley. Looking away then in the direction they were going to go, she saw hanging over the river a single small white cloud, just touched by the gold of the weakening sun. And then she saw, as if wonder must now be added to the new normality of outrage, the figure of a walking man emerge into the open concavity of the road as it came up out of the valley and turned toward the town. She knew immediately who it was, as she might have recognized at a distance too far for reading the character of her own script. It was Eli, her mother's slave, with a split basket on his arm, bringing to her and Dicey, she supposed, some gift of food. Alone, old and ambling, visible against the bare horizon 
as the chimney of a burned house. He would be at the mercy of the riders who had not yet seen him, though they would see him as soon as they looked. They would surround him on their horses. They would point their guns at him for the pleasure of seeing him frightened. They would demand the basket, or worse, they could do worse. They could do as they pleased. In her mind, a thought like a prayer cried out, Eli, get out of sight. She looked quickly at the line of riders now coming up even with her window, and then quickly back at Eli. For another wonder, he had seen them first, exactly as if he had heard her unspoken warning, he had vanished. Relieved, she looked now only at the line of riders as one by one they straggled by. Their horses were fairly fit and of fairly good stock. The men in general rode them well enough with an evident sense of their power, even maybe of pomp. And yet still she felt their strangeness, the strangeness of their ability now in their bunch to do as they pleased. They were like biting dogs. Emboldened by the fear they had caused, they longed for pursuit, but they had found as yet nobody to pursue. They had almost gone by. She had almost relaxed her strict vigilance over her fear, her courage, though she had not called it so, that had kept her sitting and watching. She was ready to stand up, shake herself, and go to find Dicey and the children. When the last of the line of riders glanced up and saw her, he stopped his horse, turned him to face the house, and sat looking up at her. Having recovered her stillness, pressing firmly downward within herself the physical tremor of her fright, she looked back at him. He was a young man with a curly, sand-colored beard. To somebody else, or in different circumstances, he might have seemed, even in his fashion, a handsome young man. But she feared him, and she hated him, and without flinching, she looked back at him. She thought, and the thought was familiar to her, how easy it would have been if she had had a gun, if she had placed herself a few feet back in the shadowy room to have shot him dead. And then she thought immediately, for this thought also, for this thought also was familiar, of the endlessness of such an act, or of its many ends, multiplying unforeseeably forever. Maybe it was that thought that kept most people out of the way of such acts, when they could keep out of the way of them. She knew she was daring him. She meant her facing him, her looking back, to be merely a refusal to be cowed by him. But she knew, she felt, the boldness even of so quiet a refusal. The deliberate impassivity of her face he would see as impudent. He would be challenged by it. He could, if he wished, shoot her and get clean away, unwitnessed his shot not necessarily causing his companions even to look back. His reprisal, though not violent, though it did not cause her to move 
or change expression was nonetheless shocking to her, for it was just as unexpected as she expected it to be. He said, without raising his voice, in perfect contempt, get your ugly face out of that window. Though for some time she continued to watch him, defying him, for she trembled now with the knowledge that she gladly would have killed him, he went on and did not look back. Finally, she allowed herself to look away. She willed herself free of her anger and her fear. She allowed the familiar room and all the house, quiet and warm and shadowy, to come round her again. Old Eli, wherever he was out there in the dimming country, was safe. The household and the town still were silent. Chances were there would be no human sound again until morning. She got up from her chair. She would go now to find the others. They would fix supper and eat. They would let another evening come upon them. They would sleep. As she went by the mirror on her dresser, she paused a moment and looked in. Unlike her mother, but as her daughter Margaret would be in her turn, she was a young woman of principled modesty. She would not have liked to catch herself thinking of herself as beautiful, though she was. But she did think, articulating the words deliberately as if saying them aloud. That is not an ugly face. Thank you for your first essay. I appreciate it a lot. 
Um, it prompted me to look quickly online at your thoughts on genetically modified crops, and I couldn't find anything that you explicitly said about pro or against it. I was against wondering if you could briefly... Crop? I'm sorry? Against which? Genetically modified crops. Oh, yeah, okay. Could you please comment on them um, just broadly, and specifically, in the last decade or two decades, there's been interest in converting annuals to perennials. Um, do you have any thoughts on that as a viable uh, means of moving forward in agriculture? Okay, there's two, two questions. <laughs> At least. Uh, one about genetically modified organisms and another about the uh, uh, breeding of perenniality into annual crops. Okay, now let's see if I can remember both of them. Genetically, uh, genetically modified organism business is simply a way for the uh, corporate industrial economy to complete, to perfect its control of uh, agriculture and eating. That's the, the, after that, nobody has any say-so anymore. And it isn't a favor to farmers. Like everything introduced into agriculture by industry, the people who profit most from it will not be the people who use it. Right now, there's a, a, a corn and bean boom, and there's going to be a little island of money-making for farmers, which is driving up the price of land. Uh, probably it won't last. I'm no prophet. I can't tell you how long it'll last, but it won't last because uh, the, the old rhythm of agriculture is to respond to a good market by overproduction, which then uh, creates a surplus that becomes a weapon in the hands of the corporations, the buyers, to drive down the price, which has a, a paradoxical result. As the price goes down, planting will increase. Trying, as my father used to say, people be trying to plow their way out of debt and producing in the process a, a, a larger surplus. So there's that, and also there is the manifest hostility of Monsanto to farmers. The, the now famous case of uh, Monsanto versus Percy Smizer, a farmer in Canada, whose crops uh, uh, let's see, what was that crop? Uh, something like flax or oilseed. Canola. Canola, that's right. His crop was contaminated by wind-blown pollen from a neighbor's genetically modified crop. And Monsanto took him to court for stealing the modification. And he's devoted his life, the rest of it, I think, to fighting Monsanto. Uh, but there's no, no wish uh, to help
help the farmers and no wish to be involved in agriculture on a sound basis. Now on the conversion of, um, of uh, annual crops to perennial crops. As usual, I'm over my head. Water over my head, that is. This is going to be a submarine exercise. Uh, that effort really was started by Wes Jackson at the Land Institute, uh, who, you remember Sir Albert Howard in England said, if you want to know how to farm, look at the forest. And then he listed her laws, keep the land covered, be diverse, build up great reserves of fertility, uh, Use, build up humus, uh, don't waste anything, uh, don't waste the things that rot and perish and can then return to the soil because uh, a, a, a soil that's biologically alive takes these things in and enriches itself. But also, nature conserves the water by means of humus, deep roots, perennial roots, and soil. When Wes Jackson started his work, he was in Kansas, so the forest was kind of ruled out as a model. But Wes thought, and by the way, you hadn't read Howard. Wes thought, there's something wrong with these uh, great monocultures of wheat in Kansas. Too much soil erosion. But he said, if you want to find out what's the matter, you have to, so to speak, put one of those fields beside a native prairie. And then he began to try to invent a perennial agriculture that would invent or that would imitate the agriculture of the prairie. And this has involved <laughs> An, uh, a long effort, a long effort of collecting native plants and breeding them, native annuals, breeding them for high seed production and for the ability to retain their seed, not shatter, to be shatterproof, and so on. And I'm not, not equipped, or, equipped or, or qualified to tell you everything that's happening, but about uh, three years ago, the first perennial grain-bearing plant uh, sort of came into existence. They call it um, Kernza. And um, I've, I've seen patches of it, recently saw some patches. There's a, a, a field of 20 or 30 acres growing now on a Kansas farmer's land. And uh, for two or three years, um, we at our house and other friends of the Land Institute have been eating bread made with kernels of flour, which is very flavorful and, and uh, good, good to eat. But the idea is polyculture, that there would be these things would be grown in mixtures with legumes and other plants that also would yield seed, but, but, but uh, a 
fixed nitrogen in the soil and so on. So there is progress on that. There's significant progress that's been made on wheat um, by Steve Jones in Washington State and uh, work on uh, upland rice in China. And uh, uh, word of success, good work is coming, news of good work is coming back everywhere. So this is a, a, a live possibility. Uh, it didn't bear well in Kansas this year because of the drought, but there was an immense uh, survival of the plant and uh, lots of grazing if anybody had cattle, you see. Now that was both two. Mr. Barry, could you uh, discuss uh, community-supported agriculture, the benefits to us, and um, you know some ideas you might have about it? I can't say much about it. Uh, community-supported agriculture is um, an arrangement between a, a farmer, a vegetable grower usually, although some they're beginning to include chickens and. Uh, down the road, I hope, pork and beef and those things, but the subscriber, the customer, pays up front a set amount, and which then entitles her to a basket of produce every week. And uh, we did this this year with a couple of young neighbors because we First thought we weren't going to have much garden, and actually didn't have much, but we had more than we intended. Um, this is an abundance of food that comes in a, a baseboard box at the end of the every week. And what's interesting about it is that uh, the customer, share, the consumer, shares the same risks with the producer. If he doesn't have it, then the customer doesn't get it. And I said to a friend of mine who no longer does that, but um, did it for a while, was the first one who did it around our part of the country, and I said, and if you don't have anything, the customer still shares your fate. Well, he said, that's your ace, but you can't play it. <laughs> and that's, that is very promising. Uh, it's, I think it's been overtaken a little bit by, um, what's the word, G gathering outfits that gather in market to do food at the farm. And it, yes. And uh, of course, the thing about the community supported farm is it takes somebody who likes to deal with the public. And one of the uh, uh, distinguishing characteristics of farmers is a lot of them are farmers because they don't want to do this. Can we just maybe, we'll do two more questions and I'm going to take one of them. I'm, I'm here to obey. Can I, can I swing to the other side of a, ask a philosophical question to you uh, about your, your, the short story? Can I, um, which is based on your... I can't reply as a philosopher. Uh, an anthropologist, then. Just a poor soul trying to make as much sense as he can out of the Okay, answer as a farmer. Okay. 
do you believe that it's, this is in reference to the short story, do you think that it's possible to lose one's humanity? If it's possible to lose one's humanity, and if, and if yes, then what is your criteria for what it means to be human? And what does it say about your understanding of human nature? You become a monster. 
you become an animal with human intelligence, which is a terrible, terrible thing. And, and he says, you know, if you know Lear well, um, there are people who get away from the, uh, the party of evil. Albany first, he recognizes the monstrosity of his wife, gets away, becomes the, becomes a, the party of good becomes a good and faithful servant. That's what, that's the text of that play. The, the, the good and faithful servant is the theme. Uh, uh, Kim is the perfect model of the good and faithful servant. And Edmund, dying, finally tells the truth. Makes a, maybe an escape, a squeak. Close call, we made it. Uh, the daughters are done for. Nothing could be done for them. And uh, the other one, uh, the other son-in-law, I forgot his name. But anyway, that's that's as near as I could come to an answer. There's there's uh, there's nature, and we have that. Then there's human nature, and that comes to us from up the scale. And the things that distinguish us by, uh, distinguish our human nature are compassion, mercy, justice, kindness, love, those things. But that's not philosophy, that's literature. <laughs> Hi, Mr. Hi, Mr. Barry. Oh, oh. Thank you for hanging out with us. I have two very easy questions. <clears throat> What's your favorite season and why? What's my favorite? Wait. Oh, I'm not done yet. What's your favorite season? Why? And what are your Thanksgiving plans? And what are you most especially thankful for this year? It's like, you know, five. That's my hope. 
I feel a little anxious about it, but I believe that's it. I believe that's where it is. Well, I, I would be silly not to see this as a beautiful segue from taking something very complex and interconnected and interwoven and turning it into a very simple act of gratitude to uh, Mr. Wendell Berry for coming and sharing with us.